Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Tom Joy, the Chief Investment Officer at the Church Commissioners of England, where he's responsible for the stewardship of the Church of England's £10 billion endowment fund. Our conversation covers Tom's background, the history and goals of church commissioners to achieve sound returns with modest volatility and invest responsibly. We discuss Tom's four pillars to achieve these objectives across governance, people, genuine diversification, and operations, and dive into team structure, internal management, external manager selection, responsible investing in the environment, diversification in public and private markets, new initiatives, and risks on the horizon. Before we get going, Private Equity Deals has been named the number one podcast for private equity dealmakers, and the interest in season two, focusing on names you know, has been off the charts. On Wednesday, have a listen to the story of the Yellowstone Club, an exclusive private members-only ski and golf community located in Big Sky, Montana, whose members reportedly include Bill Gates, Justin Timberlake, Eric Schmidt, and Tom Brady. Sam Burns Cross Harbor Capital Partners bought the business out of a messy bankruptcy in 2009 and have developed a world-class experience ever since. Search and subscribe to Private Equity Deals on your favorite podcast player to hear the story. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Tom Joy. Tom, great to see you. Great to see you, Ted. 
Well, why don't we start with how you first got involved in investing in the first place? Well, it was straight out of university. Well, not quite straight out of university. I, uh, I did my undergraduate and then I had two offers. One was to be a ski guide. One was to take a scholarship and go and do a master's. And actually the post went to my home. My mother still then was opening my post. I never saw the ski guide job offer. <laughs> when I quizzed her about it, because the firm chased me, she said, well, I, of course you're not going to take that. You've got a scholarship to do a master's. So that was a course where there were a couple of economists that were very well respected. They actually formed part of Margaret Thatcher's six wise people that advised her. So they were quite well known in the city. And I think doing that course helped me formulate a view because up to that point, like many people at that age, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. They really sort of helped me that a sort of career in the financial markets might be something I'd be interested in. So I applied and was lucky enough to get a graduate training program. And I did that for about 18 months. And I got a good break to go to Schroeder's, which is one of the best well-known UK-based asset managers. And that was really fantastic. So I took that up. I could have had a career in the in the mountains in the ski industry. But as it turns out, I uh, ended up going into investment management. And that's where I spent my whole career. What did you learn and what roles did you play at Schroeder's? I feel really lucky that in an era where most people have tended to go into a role and they've often stayed in that lane. I've really been lucky enough to have quite a lot of variety, both uh, different firms, but equally different asset classes. So I started off in fixed income. And I actually think starting out in fixed income is probably the best place to start if you're going to have a successful career in investments. It really sort of grounds you, makes you sort of really understand the sort of Charlie Ellis winning by not losing mantra, so to speak. So I, I started in global bonds. Then I moved into direct equity, quant equity, in fact, and also sort of asset allocation in what was then called the investment strategies unit at, at Schroeder's. When Schroeder set up their own multi-manager program, I headed that up. And then I sort of, that's when I moved to, if you like, evaluate using the sort of skills that I had learned in both fixed income and equity departments to analyze third-party fund managers. So they were the main roles at Schroeder's. And how did the transition to church commissioners come up? It probably came arguably a bit early. But I knew it wouldn't come again. It's like often many things in life. I didn't know a huge amount about the church commissioners, but I was headhunted by a you know, firm I knew well. And when I sort of evaluated it, it was just fantastic. It was a big pool of capital, single client, pure investment role, really good group of trustees, good track record even then. And they hadn't had a CIO before. The idea behind why they wanted to hire a CIO was really they felt that the investment committee was taking too much of the strategic decisions and there wasn't enough decision-making coming up from the executive team. So the balance, if you like, between what was done at a non-executive level and what was done at an exec level wasn't quite right. And a gentleman called Andreas Whittam-Smith decided we must have a, a CIO, bring everything together. I was lucky enough to be the candidate that got the role. Why did you say that it wasn't quite the right time for you? I was very happy what I was doing. I thought I had more to do in my existing role. I was then at Ram Merchant Bank. I was enjoying working for a very entrepreneurial, although it was quite a big, a big bank in South Africa and big bank globally, it was still really had that sort of entrepreneurial culture. When you're enjoying something, you know, and you feel you've got more to do, you're not really looking necessarily for another opportunity. But I knew this wouldn't come unlikely at least to come again. So that's why in the end I decided to take it and I haven't looked back. I know there's a long and rich history of the church commissioners. So why don't you talk a bit about that history and the pool of capital you stepped into? Well, the origins for the church commissioners actually date, well, they, they can be traced back to the split with Rome. Um, and when Henry VIII did his thing, so to speak, and um, split with the Catholic Church, there was a tax, it was called First Fruit and Tenths, that was collected, and it used to go to Rome, and then it then obviously it just went to the monarchy. Many years later, Queen Anne ultimately gifted that to the clergy, it was called Queen Anne's Bounty. That then combined with some of the assets of, of the bishops and cathedrals were merged in just after the Second World War in 1948 to form the, you know, what is now the, the church commissioners. But if you, but the origins of the actual pool of capital that, that I'm now looking after dates from the split with Rome. And as you stepped into this role, what were the core goals and objectives of managing this pool of capital? We wanted to really focus on our objective what really mattered for us, and then to put all of the pieces of the jigsaw in place to achieve that objective, rather than necessarily, which I think maybe happens in our industry too much, is looking at what everybody else is doing, and then just copying that. So the objective is inflation plus. So it's now CPI, CPIH plus 4%. Uh, it's not always been that. So our objective is to really grow our support for the church. They put at place a very high value on consistency. 
So the client or the church really values that consistency. They really don't like the idea of cuts in distributions. Now you have to really think about that from an investment risk perspective. So that's an important point. And the other objective really is to be at the forefront globally of responsible investment, which is obviously something that you know, being who we represent is, is important for us. So there are our objectives. In setting that as an investment mission, there's, there's two things you said that was interesting. One was this target of inflation plus four that wasn't always that way. And then the other is this notion of they'd like effectively stable spending. And you can imagine a bunch of different ways you could go about that. So I'd love to tackle both of those. First, that return objective and it not staying the same. Like, How does that work? In practical terms, if I want to change the return hurdle, I have to take a recommendation to the board. That's even above the investment committee to the board to get sign off for that. I've only done it once. That was in 2019 when I lowered the return hurdle from RPI plus five to CPIH plus four. That in a sense, I think gives me two points because the RPI is always higher than CPI. (laughs) So (laughs) the RPI CPI wedge, they often talk about it. So roughly about two points lower. And I did it principally because I felt the return prospects going forward would be worse and lower. And valuations across all markets were stretched. So not just in certain markets, really much across the board were stretched. So it was hard for me to see us achieving that higher hurdle without taking what I thought as undue risk. And if you've got a set target and return prospects are not so good, by definition, you have to increase risk just at what I think is the counterintuitive and worst time when you want to be reducing risk. So I took a recommendation to the board, we should lower the target and they accepted it. I, I wouldn't rule out, I certainly wouldn't do it today. We don't change it very often, but in theory, it, we could increase our return target uh, as well. So that's the mechanics. And if you like the idea behind why we think that it's not right just to have a fixed return target for all time, but it's only if medium to long-term return prospects are we think, really um, materially changed and, and out of whack. How does the annual spending work from this pool? We take independent actuarial advice on you know, what we think is a sustainable spend rate. We publish that advice. So I think that's important. So people can be really clear about the advice we've received about what we think is a sustainable spend rate. The investment committee it, it makes a decision on what that sustainable spend rate is and, and then advises our board that that's what we think is, is achievable. So that's how it works, if you like. What does what are the actual numbers? We've typically been at around the sort of three to three and a half percent spend rate. Compared to some other globally, that's quite a low spend rate. We think that's sustainable. We have recently increased it. In fact, just starting this year, we've we've announced our largest ever increase in spending, a 30% increase over the next three years, and uh, not per year, but over the whole three years. And also if we look back through time, we've managed, although we target that rate that I said, we've actually managed to grow our distribution since 2005 by about 7% per annum, a little under, which is about three times the rate of inflation in the in the UK. So, And that all comes from investment performance. We're a closed pool of capital, no new money in. So the only way we can grow our distributions is through uh, strong performance. Some of the reason behind the recent increase is that we've agreed to some time-limited distributions. Now, time-limited distributions obviously place a much lower burden on the fund compared to distributions that you're you're going to do for in perpetuity, etc. So examples of that would be time-limited distributions to support the church in its net, zam- net zero ambitions. The church in its operating business is, is determined it wants to be net zero by 2030. At an investment portfolio level, because we're investing in the real world and the whole global economy, we've set that at 2050, so there is a, a difference. But we, in our grants, want to support the church in its net zero ambitions. And obviously that, by definition, is a time-limited effort. So with those objectives with this pool of capital, both rate of return and the spending needs, you step into a seat where you've had a broad background and you've both worked at a storied institution and an entrepreneurial organization. And then you step into a portfolio that is not quite where you think it should be. How did you first tackle that? I realized pretty early on that patience was going to be important, that evolution, not revolution. And often in organizations, there's this desire to make an impact quick. And I think actually, if you've got a more patient mindset, you're more likely to carry everybody with you on the journey. So there were four main areas that I really wanted to focus on. The first one was governance and real clarity around what role everybody plays in the process. So what's the role of the board? 
what's the role of the investment committee? We actually have some subgroups underneath our investment committee that work on different component parts of the portfolio. What's their role? What's the role of the executive? And what's our agreed objective and investment philosophy and get real buy-in to all of that? So that was one really important thing to do. And I felt that their approach, if you like, to thinking about who was on the investment committee could be improved by really sort of thinking about the skills matrix, how they might go about approaching, attracting and, and choosing those individuals that were going to serve on the IC as, as well. And, and also getting the balance right between subject matter expertise and stakeholder representation, because both are really, really important. The next was people, because you can have the best laid plans and great plans and ambitious plans. But if you don't get the backing to attract, retain really good people, but equally the right amount of people, then you're not likely to succeed. And that links a little bit to the third point, which was diversification. If I go back to something I said earlier, the client, the church wants quite a challenging return target, but it wanted consistency as well. Those two arguably sometimes are not necessarily compatible. So the best way to achieve that, I felt, was through what I would call genuine diversification. So I wanted that genuine diversification really factoring on the sort of economic drivers of the underlying asset classes and the role that they play in the portfolio. And to do that, you wanted people. And then as well, I really needed really strong operational sort of infrastructure. So, you know, they were the major sort of things that I wanted to sort of put in place. And I said, I don't need to do it all on day one, but we want to do it over time. Well, let's tackle each of those. So first on governance, where did you come out in terms of where each role and responsibility of those different layers of governance. So the board really sort of set the investment objective. The investment committee set and agree the rules of the road, so to speak. So if you like, they agree our strategic you know, asset allocation and the ranges around that. They agree all of our sort of responsible investment policies. All of these are recommendations that are coming from the investment team, but they really sort of sign off on them. The different subgroups below the IC, one that focuses on all assets, excluding real assets, and one that is really a real assets group, they determine or approve new partnerships. So if I'm bringing partners in, new managers, external managers, I get them approved by the different subgroups. But once they're approved, then it's really up to me in terms of when we allocate to them, the allocations between managers, and also we have quite a high degree of uh, delegated authority in relation to altering the dynamic management of the investment risk within the portfolio. And we at an investment team are responsible for firing managers. We just then inform the investment committee that we've done it. So re-ups with private market managers are all done by us. And and if we choose not to re-up again, that's done by the investment team. What was the thought process behind a entry or hiring decision being part of the subcommittees, but the firing decision coming from the investment team? I really wanted to make sure that we got buy-in. If all that the trustees are getting are investment performance numbers or reporting, I think it's hard to get that real depth of understanding about why the investment team are making the recommendations that they are. So part of it was really ensuring sufficient depth of buy-in by our trustees in what we're doing. But candidly, I'm really blessed to have some of the really very best uh, investment minds on my IC. And I thought if we, di- if we didn't make use of them, if they were the- they're-, they're just for show, so to speak, that's such a wasted opportunity. I feel in some ways they're doing- helping me do my job. I'm vetting the investment ideas from the team. If I get additional vetting from my IC, that is typically normally value added. Now, of course, the key there is how they do it. So I really want sort of challenge and support. And to date, I think it's worked really well because we've we've really got fantastic trustees and it keeps my investment team on their toes, candidly. (laughs) If they know that papers are having to go up to the IC and these people really do study them in some detail, the quality of the work that's produced, I think, is of a higher standard, if I'm honest. Now, the firing, though, I think is a sort of behavioural sort of aspect to it. I think and history's shown me that it's very hard to get an investment committee to agree to firing a manager when their performance is stellar or to not re-up with a, a manager when they've got absolutely shoot the lights out numbers. But in our view, they've got ahead of themselves. They're raising too big a fund. It just it's just not possible to get comfortable that what's been done in the past is going to be repeatable given what they've done. So that was really why we felt that we wanted it that way around. 
Were there any sticky points in getting from mapping out that's how you'd like the governance to work to the point in time where it was functioning with those roles and responsibilities? Oh, yeah, for sure. And this comes back to this patience. It comes back to the sort of evolution, not revolution. And I think because I've been able to have that mindset, and I've never once, I, well, you'd have to speak to my investment committee, but I've never once shown emotion or frustration if they've said, no, or they, they never say no, typically, but they'll say, we need more work, or we need more time or evidence to sort of contemplate doing this. I wouldn't call them sticking points, but where we've just had to take more time. And that's fine. What was an example of one of those instances where you thought the governance structure should work in a certain way, but it took more time than you would have liked? The first one is that, of course, trustees love meeting managers. They love it. When I first got there, they still held beauty parades. So the team would put up a number of managers and the trustees would choose from them. When you think about the amount of work that the team can do relative to a decision being made ultimately on the basis of a 45-minute presentation, I don't think that's a recipe for tremendous success, if I'm honest. So that was the first thing to sort out. Then getting rid of the firing that we would be the ones responsible for the firing, took a couple of goes. But ultimately, we got there. It's all now in place. So that would be probably an example. Your second big focus was on your people, on the team. Yep. How did you think about who you wanted to bring in and how to structure them? The first thing to sort of say is that we had to sort of change the structure to make sure that we could be competitive. Although we're not a top payer, we're certainly competitive. That was an important thing to get right. Next, I wanted to sort of really make it sure it was one team because I went on to say you know before it was really the securities portfolio and then the real property they sat on different different floors they didn't interact a huge amount when I first got there and in fact only it was only really the senior people that came together at an IC level that's when they sort of saw each other and that didn't seem to make a lot of sense so it was it was one team but with areas of specialism and it's gone through iterations actually so we I, we were more siloed so I, I put in, in place sort of asset class heads but that was within both public and private markets. And now I've consolidated it into just one public markets team and one private markets team and a real assets team. And I wanted to differentiate between people that were doing direct investments and those that were doing third party fund manager sele selection and that we had sufficient resource so people weren't spread too thinly. I really wanted to give people accountability and ownership, you know, what, you know and compete, if you like, in the ways that we could, knowing that we weren't going to be a to able to compete purely on reward as some others may so really being in people that were happy and comfortable taking ownership of things and really running with them and sort of self-starters the other thing i thought given the nature of what we do i need individuals in the team that can maybe have gravitas beyond their their years to be able to be very comfortable in front of managers from an early stage as well as really comfortable in front of the trustees because i don't want it to be me presenting to the trustees. I really want it to be the people that have done the work and then to really sort of value and be seen to value and call out, you know, tremendous performance from the people that are really doing the work rather than me take credit for their works. What did you pick up from your prior experiences that led to how you would describe your leadership style? Words are free. It's amazing if you really praise someone and you do it sort of publicly when it's merited, you know, how good that makes someone feel. And it's free. I remember how that made me feel when it happened to me early in my career. And I equally, on the opposite side of the coin, examples where I've done masses amount of work and then someone has taken that work and presented it and whoever they're presenting it to has, has lauded it as fantastic, brilliant. And not once through it have they ever, or later after the fact, have they given any credit. It's not that I needed to take all the credit, but just, you know, and, and I remember how annoyed I was about that. I think it's just focusing on that and thinking through that. Yeah, I never really went on, you know, management training courses or haven't been done a huge amount of, if you like, leadership courses. So it's more sort of learning on the job. But thankfully, we've managed to hire really, really good people. They've stuck around. We have very low turnover. So um, I guess must be doing something right. Are there things you would now describe as tenets of your own leadership management style? Yeah, I think, you know, real transparency, focus on clear communication, you know, honest feedback, 
investment isn't easy. Sometimes you do have to make difficult decisions. When we do need to make changes, I've really tried to be sort of kind about it, patient about it. And while those individuals may not be happy at the time, ultimately, I think if someone's in the wrong seat or they're not really sort of performing, ultimately making changes is the right thing to do. I think really giving people opportunity. You know, I really sort of focus and like to have a sort of balance between experience, but equally back youth, back that enthusiasm for the right people, give them the rope to sort of run with. There's a number of people in my team that, that have joined at, you know, investment, you know, not even an analyst level, and they're now leading an asset class. That's enormously rewarding. You mentioned internal and external management. How do you decide what to do internally and what to have external managers? First thing is, you know, what we do internally would be things where we feel we've got a competitive advantage. A number of those would be in the real asset space. We're investing in asset classes, but it's not really an institutional asset class. There aren't really sort of products or managers doing what we're doing. So we do that ourselves. Simple asset classes where we don't really believe in active management. That would be cash, government bonds, for example. We do that in-house ourselves. And the other one would be tactical asset allocation. And so we have a very developed internal derivative capability uh, and manage our both our investment risk dynamically ourselves internally. You might think, wow, why did you pick that? And the main one there is that you don't want to use it all the time. So if it's something that where we could go externally to do it, and if we, as soon as you give a manager a mandate, they want to do stuff. They want to earn their fee. And I think tactical asset allocation in particular is something that's episodic. And you really want to be utilizing it when the elastic is stretched very tight. So we decided, actually started to decide to do that about the same time as we decided that we wanted to lower our investment return target. And we started to build a really robust internal derivative capability to be able to, to, to dynamically manage the investment portfolio through time. It comes with other benefits, actually, because it gives you some like efficient portfolio management implementation benefits as well. But the main one was the um, capability to do TAA. How do you decide when things are stretched enough that you should take action? The primary one is the price that the market is asking you to pay for, for asset classes. Buy. So the main areas where we manage investment risk dynamically would be interest rate, equity risk, and FX. And obviously, although I would say that actually fixed income and credit is very much back on the table for virtually the entire time that I've been at the church commissioners, we've not owned fixed income or very little. Uh, we always hold cash and we're very focused on liquidity. We always hold at least two years worth of unencumbered cash from a distribution perspective, net of the income we're, we're going to get. So the main one is sort of price. We have a disciplined valuation process uh, where we look across all markets and in a, in a, in a look at what the market's asking you to pay for things. We also have uh, and have developed a number of very comprehensive set of internal models. They're looking at technical factors, sentiment factors. We're making use of our quants are making use of AI to sort of help build those models. So it's pretty sophisticated sophisticated, comprehensive suite. Like anything that we do, when we're going to do something, we want to do it really robustly and properly. So I hired the global head of Cross Asset from, from, from Bank of America to come and be my managing director of investment strategy. And he hired then you know, a number of quants to sort of support him. And in fact, we're actually growing the team further currently and looking for another strategist to come and support him. And then we did a whole bunch of stuff on the operational side. It's a combination of whether we're in an environment where we think things are really sort of stretched from a sort of strategic perspective, as well as signals from our models that say that, you know, the technicals are terrible, the sort of macro and, you know, economic fundamentals are deteriorating, not necessarily, so direction there is probably more important than actual level, as well as sort of sentiment flows. And that all sort of feeds into deciding whether we want to, on occasion, increase risk, but equally, quite importantly, put a lot of hedging in place to protect the portfolio. What's that decision-making process like both when you decide, okay, now's the time to enter the trade. And then maybe, you know, it sounds great, right? You started in 2019. We know where we are today. Okay, now there's another decision that's equally difficult. What do you do going forward? The main thing is really sort of recognizing that you don't need to do things all the time. That's really why we wanted to build it. If we don't have strong conviction or views, we're just going to be with our portfolio. We, I mean, it's got sufficient diversification, we believe. Uh, you know, we have a lot lower typically equity risk than many of our, you know, other, other funds. We have a lot higher allocation to sort of what I would say genuine inflation hedges and real assets than others. We have quite a reasonable amount of cash to meet liquidity needs. So it is really only doing something when things are at extremes. So decision-making process, that is all internal. So we have 
TAA guidelines over and above our, our strategic sort of asset allocation. So all agreed with with our trustees, a set of permissible instruments, set of investment guidelines and thresholds, etc. That's all run and checked by our compliance department and operations function, etc. So it's really my you know MD of investment strategy really coming to me with a sort of view. And I play, if you like, the devil's advocate. I'm sort of stressing to say, you know, is this really an extreme? Is this really sort of something that we want to be acting on? And that's, if you like, how we are doing things. And so far, you know, it's really been tremendous value add for us. When you have acted on it, how do you think about sizing? Well, I would say, first up, why are we doing it? If I was a fund or managing assets for someone where it was all about long-term wealth creation and the mark-to-market and the volatility didn't matter, they had tremendous flexibility on their distributions. So if things didn't go right, I probably wouldn't do TAA. I don't think you'd need to. You'd just go heavy equity orientated, maybe high degree of private markets as well if you could get access to really good managers and away you go and come back in 10, 15 years time and you'll be fine. But we do think about that fact that we don't want to cut distributions. You know, it's painful for for the church to do that. We've never had to cut distributions in the past. We didn't cut them post GFC. We held them flat for a number of years in nominal terms. So that was obviously a real cut. So it is thinking about it in those terms as well, that, you know, we do need to think about the downside. I do think that the world's changed a bit. Everyone normally says you can't time the markets. I think we're in a different environment now, actually. And I think it will be more value added. And I'm just incredibly grateful that we've set it up in the way that we have. And we've now got that capability. When you've decided that there's that portion of your portfolio that you'd like to find external managers, what are the things that you care most about? It would vary asset class by asset class. I mean, we do we do think that there is an inverse relationship between active management and the efficiency of an asset class. So in some asset classes, it's about access. You know, we have a reasonable allocation to absolute return. If I was to talk generically about the hedge fund industry, I would say that probably on balance... At an aggregate level, that industry doesn't justify its fees or its role in the portfolio because on a net of fee basis, it's really not going to give clients what they need at an aggregate industry level. However, there are some managers that are incredibly skillful and can demonstrably deliver that absolute return or pure alpha, if you like, through time. Thankfully, we've got a number of them in our portfolio and they have very long-standing relationships. So there... It's really just about sort of making sure that we feel that they're going to be able to continue to sort of be competitive and continue to do what they've done in the past. And throughout everything, it's about alignment. We really do focus a lot on on alignment. So even in the public equity space, we're really looking to partner with managers that where we think they've got that strong alignment. So that, that would be an important point. And that we feel that the assets that they're managing is consistent with the opportunity that they're going after. I mean, size is a real hindrance to performance, it's often said. So we look a lot about that. But, you know, elsewhere in fixed income, for example, where it's sort of really, like I said, winning by not losing, actually, we often partner with managers that are much bigger, where they really have that depth of resource one of the most important overriding things you mentioned at the outset is responsible investing. How do you approach that? Our goal, as I said, was you know, really to be at the sort of forefront. But what I would say is that our major focus is on doing good, not just looking good. If we take the sort of E of ESG, if you like, or RI and the environment, you know, we have set a, um, a net zero target for 2050. We want a net zero world. We don't just want a net zero portfolio. So I think that I think runs through all that we are doing. We're really focused on trying to nudge and effect change rather than just trying to make changes in the portfolio so we can then look good. We really have a sort of full toolkit of our team. I've got seven people dedicated to responsible investment. If you want to effect change, you've got to have the people to do it. And although we're a small fund, you know, we've got quite, you know, a powerful voice. So we focus on avoiding parts of the market. You know, that is by definition going to come with who we're representing. And that was really where it was when I got there. It was all about avoiding harm, so to speak. Now it's much more about doing good. That's about engaging with corporates and trying to affect change at a corporate level. It's about uh, engaging with fund managers. We probably engage as much with fund managers as we do with corporates. It's about engaging on a policy level and trying to affect change there. We've been involved in some policy initiatives, particularly on deforestation, for example, um, 
high level. Uh, we've led global uh, coalitions on that with uh, the Indonesian government and also the Brazilian government. And that's really been quite effective. If we can help help and solve that deforestation challenge, you know, that will go a, a huge way to, to solving the climate challenge. Then it's also about in focusing on impact and looking under the bonnet and peeling back the onion of the portfolio to really sort of see and measure the real world impact that we're having in the portfolio. And we've got if you like, an unlimited appetite for what I would label win-win investments. So they're investments that are meet our financial hurdles, but equally are going to be impactful in some way, really aligned to our major pillars, which is sort of respect for people and respect for the planet. How have you thought about measurement? Let's just talk about the E and say carbon emissions, net zero across every aspect of the portfolio. That's a challenge for anybody. You know, it's even more of a challenge for us because we've really got some you know, asset classes where that's not really been thought about yet. So we've set that long-term target. You know, As part of our commitment to Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance, we've made an interim target. But we want to make sure that the targets as we go along that journey are achievable. You know, we don't have to have all the answers today. But just because we don't have all the answers today, I don't, don't think it should mean that people can't set long-term targets targets. So our first one is to reduce by 25% our scope one and scope two emissions in our public equities portfolio and real estate by 2025 based on a 2019 baseline. So, you know, I think that should be achievable. We are focused very much in our real assets portfolio. We own a lot of farmland. We own a lot of forestry. You know, we're looking at ways whereby we can capture and an industry sort of initiatives to, to look at the measurement on you know, from a regenerative farming perspective, um, and you know, we often will pilot and test uh, initiatives with different, um, you know, industry people, uh, which is what we're what we're doing on the farmland space. On you know, in private markets, there's some uh, initiatives as well that we're sort of involved with that um, are looking at you know collaboration with other LPs and GPs to sort of determine a, a, a sensible framework and, and list of metrics to start to sort of capture at a portfolio level. So it varies across asset class. And I'm grateful that, you know, I've got a, a you know, sizable responsible investment team to sort of help. So if you look at just that public equity target, you're now coming up on what happens in practice when you're making active decisions, because you can see companies making changes, but maybe they'll make those changes. Maybe they don't. What actions do you take at the portfolio level? So we manage a reasonable amount of the um, public equity in-house, but we use third-party managers as well. So we are engaging with them. You know, what we can do in our role is really make sure that we engage with those managers to make sure that they're really sort of fully factoring in the thinking about these risks in their decision-making and improving that. So it's really sort of looking at both on the component part of the public equity portfolio that we manage in-house, we're obviously thinking about those risks and making uh, factoring them in. And we're also engaging quite heavily with our third-party managers that also manage public equities and looking at how we're not going to be prescriptive. You know, the last thing we would ever do is try to tell a third-party manager how to manage their portfolio. That is certain recipe for disaster. And, when, and, the, and all of the good managers would say no, obviously. So that is really the process. On this spectrum of divestment, which you said started with and then engagement, there's this interesting example of your work with Exxon and would love you to tell the stories of that engagement over time. I'm happy to. So, I mean, I guess the first thing on divestment versus engagement, people often are in one camp or the other, and I would say it's a false dichotomy. You need both because I think engagement without the ultimate threat of divestment is a very blunt instrument. And I've never met anybody that can tell me that divestment off the bat works. That is really the last resort. And I think you're starting to get a, a, a greater degree of realization of that uh, in the media and by, by, by investors and that more nuanced approach that recognizes that you want really both of those things in your armory. But in relation to Exxon, it's an, a long, long-standing engagement of, of ours. Uh, you know, and ultimately, for all oil major companies, we really want them, going back to that point that we're, we're saying we really want a net zero world, not just a net zero portfolio, we really sort of feel that pure EMP or pure oil and gas companies face ultimately an existential threat. And actually, you arguably would probably want to divest from them for financial reasons. Now, of course, if you look at the last year or so, they've done tremendously well. But if you look over the sort of long term, and if you believe ultimately the world is going to be successful in the transition, then 
they need to change. Otherwise, ultimately, they will face a stranded asset risk and you'd want to divest from them for pure financial reasons. We really felt that strongly, uh, still do. And in the case of, of Exxon, where we, we ultimately weren't getting what we needed, we partnered up and supported the Engine Number no. 1 activist campaign. Our strong preferences for engagement behind the scenes. We would love change to happen and for no one to ever know that we were involved with it, that we're totally fine from that. We just love to fly under the radar. If we can affect change, we're never seeking plaudits for it in any shape or form. But in this case, we really felt that it needed to be, the ante needed to be upped. And we publicly supported engine number one and ultimately came, you know, that was a successful campaign. It changed a quarter of the board. If you think Exxon used to be the biggest company in the world, the thought that a little group of investors could change a quarter of the board's makeup is really quite remarkable. And actually, it has had a lot of change. You know, they have you know made new capital um, allocation commitments to sort of low carbon initiatives. They've set emissions targets. I mean, they used to describe net zero targets as beauty contests, and now they've making their own. So, you know, I think it can prove that engagement can have an impact. You, some may argue whether it works, but you can have, can have an impact and is a really sort of important part of good stewardship. In that journey, you said you normally would like to stay below the radar. So a lot had to happen to get to the point where you were going to publicly back Engine Number One's campaign. Where do you decide that it's just not going to happen and therefore you choose divestment. How far does it have to go? Great question. Hard thing to pin down with precision, if I'm truly honest. The first thing is just how important is it? Respect for the planet and the sort of energy transition, you know, is just such an important thing for us. We felt that it was worth it. Second would be confidence of success to some degree. Do we think this has a chance of succeeding? I think actually to be totally candid in this instance we probably didn't have as high a conviction that it would work as we would normally like but that was swayed by just how important if it was successful so it's multifaceted so you mentioned under that umbrella respect for the environment respect for people it seems that the s let's say of, of it's just harder to measure and i'd love to hear how you've thought about that I would agree that it is much harder. It's more nuanced. It's harder to measure. And the measurement of the E piece uh, is much further ahead. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't say it's important and to work on initiatives or ideas or to have a focus on it. So we don't have uh, as hard and fast targets, so to speak, on the S as we do on the on the E. But I think they will come over time. I think the S is really important uh, and will grow in importance. But it's completely fair to say, um, and I haven't got uh, you know anything particular that I can point to in relation to sort of measurement that I think is really going to be the benchmark. Only to say that there's a lot of very bright people focused on it and recognizing its importance, and that's growing. So I'd love to turn to more on some of this portfolio and underneath the concept of genuine diversification, wonderful word. How have you approached within, let's just start with, say, the equities area? I would say that we very much focus on slicing and dicing the portfolio and the data in different ways, utilizing different tools rather than sort of having, say, one to see if it shows differences, any unintended sort of biases. And we've typically always run with a much more balanced approach to growth and value at a simple level, investment style balance. That for most of people's investment career for the last 15 years post GFC, all you want to do is be long growth. And we always felt that balance was important, that value ultimately would come back. So that's one idea about genuine diversification. The other one is that we typically have also within public equities bias to defensive equities. Coming back to this point about managers that we really sort of believe in, in the absolute return, it's these are equity long short strategies or managers where they really have delivered. We'd be happy there with market equaling returns, but with materially lower beta. We then within our TAA determine how much, whether we want to be, we can add the index exposure. And we, we do take that to beta one. So our overall equity, public equity component will be, if you like, beta one, or we don't have anything on at all. And then and if and roughly, roughly speaking, 40% of our fund is in public equities. Of that, roughly 32% is in traditional public equities and about 8% is in, in long short, or what we label defensive equity. Have you thought about the trade-off in that defensive equity objective between a long short fund and a lower beta, long only strategy? 
We've looked at both. We just prefer the construct that we've come up with. We think we have more control over it. The long short managers that we've partnered with have been more consistent in their beta. So we know what we've got. Ultimately, the critical component part of, of portfolio is making sure what you think you've got is what you've actually got. And so that is probably what I would say there. Our concept of genuine diversification does focus more at a total portfolio level. So again, coming back to equities, probably, I would think on balance, our public equity portfolio might lag a little bit in a very strongly rising market, typically, even if we get everything right. Uh, And that was certainly what we experienced. I don't mind that if when markets go down, it really doesn't go down nearly as much because it it reduces, if you like, the heavy lifting that the rest of the portfolio has to do. How has the trajectory of your private equity investments evolved? So we've been in private equity investing since the mid-1990s. It's roughly about 13 to 14% of our overall book, which is a sizable amount, but it's not nearly as big as some other investors have. I'm happy with that. It's roughly split equal between We've got a little bit more in buyout than VC, but it's roughly split 50-50. There, we think a bit differently. So I don't target a VC allocation. I target VC managers. And I will take what I can get from the managers that I'm targeting. We have a very concentrated book of managers. And our allocation, if you like, is what drops out of the access we can get with the managers we wish to partner with. That's done really well for us. I would just do more buyout if I lower and and even within buyout it's a very heterogeneous space we hardly have anything in large buyout we typically really focus on lower mid-market buyout there we also focus a bit between generalists in the lower mid-market and sector specialists or areas where domain expertise I think gives managers an edge and that's been if you like our approach doesn't mean that other approaches in private equity aren't great uh, but that's just what we've wanted to do and what we've focused on and our size you know if I was running a fund that was 100 billion rather than a fund that was 10 billion I'd have to come up with a completely different construct and approach but that works really well for us and we've been really fortunate to gain the access that we have and the partnerships that we've been able to build over time. At your size, as you mentioned, some of your peers have larger allocations to venture and private equity. You mentioned you're happy with yours. Why is that? I think that the best thing an investor can have is lack of FOMO. I think FOMO is the most dangerous thing in investor. So as a, as a psyche, you've just got to not worry about that. All I care about is creating a portfolio that's going to meet my objectives. And if I look at others that have done better, I say, brilliant, well done you, that's tremendous. But most other people seem to get FOMO and they want to chase those. And that doesn't make me not competitive. <laughs> I am competitive, but I'm competitive against my objective, not competitive about others. I want others to do well because that's great because they're obviously managing assets for other endowments and foundations that are super worthy causes. I really want them to do to do well as well. So I valued that genuine diversification because PE and VC ultimately is still equity. It's investments in companies. They're going to be determined by the same economic drivers as public equities. Now, I do think that private markets have some advantages and public equities and also VC managers have more levers um, than than sometimes public companies have to navigate, etc. And I think the construct of our PE and VC portfolio means that it will probably navigate a downturn better than um, than, than maybe public equities generally, but it's still ultimately equity. It's, and in the environment that we're in now, there are other asset classes that can really provide you what I would label that more genuine um, diversification. And I want to make sure that I've got sufficient allocation to them. And they're also often illiquid. And I think any portfolio can only take so much illiquidity. So I didn't want to utilize all of my illiquidity budget in from the PE and, and the VC. What are those other areas? So the big ones for us would be in real assets. We have a very big allocation to forestry, uh, about 5% of the fund. We have a big allocation to farmland. That's about 6% of the fund. We have a big allocation to land more generally in the UK, which is land where we're promoting it for change of use. That's like having 50 odd lottery tickets 
in your portfolio um, when you and if you can be successful in terms of taking it from you know what is now agricultural use to employment use or or, or or housing that you know and that's not really so linked to the economic cycle other one would be infrastructure when i'm not talking here about core infrastructure you know contracted cash flow i'm talking higher slightly higher risk uh, particularly linked to sort of climate friendly uh, climate transition initiatives so we've got an, a number of allocations there all of those things have different economic drivers than just if you like pure investment in companies and they particularly do well in an inflationary environment. How have you thought about the different categories of real estate you invest in? So we don't have a big allocation today to commercial real estate. I think commercial real estate is closer to equity than sometimes people really realize. So we sold out when I first arrived we used to have quite a big allocation to commercial real estate and I thought well why have we got this is illiquid. I don't think it's going to deliver a better return than, than equity over the long run. Why take that? Why not Why not use that illiquidity budget more somewhere else? And that's, you know, in part why in 2011, we, uh, you know, I really wanted to build a big forestry portfolio. I felt that that would be a really useful addition to the portfolio. So it's thinking about what are the economic drivers or that influence the returns. I mean, all of what we do comes down a little bit to sort of price. I mean, I've talked a lot about the role that asset classes can play in the portfolio, but and I've said we've got a dynamic asset allocation perspective. The role that an asset class can play in your portfolio also changes through time. And the easiest one to think about is bonds. People often talk about bonds as a defensive asset. You want to balance your equities with a defensive asset bonds. And at the price that they got to, bonds were really risky. And actually, on occasion in the past, uh, not now, but at the depths of the GFC, equities weren't really risky. They were much less risky. Actually, parts of the credit market are not nearly as risky as they used to be uh, and actually can play you know, a more interesting role because you're paid to wait. And it all comes back to that. And it's really simple, it sounds, but the sort of price that you pay for something is just such a powerful uh, determinant of your returns. And I think not enough people focus on that. What are the areas of the credit markets that interest you? In those markets, we have evergreen drawdown structures with managers, and we've been unallocated to them for years. So all, everything's set up with the manager to go. Um, we've got sort of trigger points agreed and we don't pay any fees to the manager unless we're invested. And that's worked really well. So we've started to allocate a bit of capital to them. I think we were quite active in the private credit market in the post-GFC. So I'm talking 2010 to 2014, then maybe 2015. Then we became a lot less sort of excited about the opportunity set. I think now starting to get more interesting. We're quite active there as well, but not made a whole bunch of commitments yet. You had mentioned earlier that in, in the absolute return area, part of your alternative strategies, in aggregate, hedge funds don't look so good, but you found certain ones that work for what you're trying to accomplish. Are there particular strategies within the umbrella of hedge funds that you found those opportunities that work for you? Yeah, definitely the multi-strat. I mean, if you said, well, you know, what's one of your worries? I do worry a little bit about peak platform and the competition for sort of talent, etc. But just the amount of capital that some have taken. But there's been a really active, and that's certainly where the bulk of our capital has been allocated. But equally, we've, we've been successful on the equity long short space, but that sits, that sits there within our public equity allocation. What new initiatives are you working on with your team? We felt we were too siloed. We felt that we didn't have sufficient competition for capital across asset classes within. So we've, we've consolidated into a public markets team, a private markets team, and our direct real assets. That's been one that we're working on. Given how much we've broadened out our internal derivative and TAA capability, we've, we've had to sort of really focus on the depth, strength and depth of our operational function. You know, there's sort of areas that we're sort of looking at um, we haven't made any commitments we're looking quite actively at the sports space you know this in the u.s this the sports markets are sort of opening up to sort of institutional capital and that might be interesting that's one area that we're looking at transition metals is another and mining finance certainly in develop in developed markets is another area that we think could be quite interesting and again you know i think the climate transition you know is it just and so the infrastructure space is is going to throw up a, a ton of opportunities going forward and how about risks, risks you're most concerned about? The biggest one would be sort of the macro and the sort of geopolitical. We don't allow, we don't take really very strong views on those. But the, the, the big macro one would be, you know, inflation just does not come, you know, that we end up in that sort of wage price spiral, sticky labor markets. And actually, we're only in the first innings of, you know, a long period of 
weak markets. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but that's what I'm most worried about because it you know you you certainly i don't think can argue that at current levels you know equity markets are screamingly cheap and there have been points in history when even though the macro is terrible the price is, is so cheap it doesn't matter we're certainly not there i always worry about people and losing people i mean you know, i've been perennially worried about that but i've always been surprised on the upside thankfully <laughs> i hope that continues I worry about that. So they would probably be my two main worries. Cognizant of the potential risk for inflation, what, if anything, do you do today in the portfolio to think about that and integrate it? I'm pretty comfortable with the, you know, the portfolio that we've got. We've got a lot more, I think, inf- you know, genuine inflation hedges and things that tend to do well in an inflationary environment than most. So that seems to be playing out. That's helpful. Like, you know, we're making more use of our TAA than, you know, we have, well, we, we have been for a while. We continue to do so, I guess, is probably uh, what I would what would say in terms of not being too greedy and making sure we've got the right sort of hedges in place to protect. Looking for more, you know, that transition metals piece that I talked about, you know, I think that could be something interesting. You know, adding more hedges to the portfolio would do well if inflation does surprise on the upside. They would be the main ones. There's so much more we could cover. But for now... I'm not going to let you go without asking a couple of fun closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? That would probably have to be skiing. I love the mountains. I can still just about keep up with my children on the ski front. So yeah, that would be probably my happy place. I'm, I'm much more into sort of active holidays than I am into sort of the relaxing ones. And I love the skiing in the mountains. Do you have a favorite mountain? We do a lot of skiing in Switzerland in a village that not many people have heard of called Murin. Many people have heard of Wengen, where they have the Lauberhorn, which is the big, most famous ski race. That's the opposite side of the mountain. The other side of the mountain is the most picturesque village you could imagine, and not many people know about it. So that would be probably one. What type of investment do you gravitate to, like a moth to the flame? I would say an investment where there's a real need for institutional capital. Not many other people are doing, or it's not common, which normally means that the price you're going to have to pay for investments in that space is still attractive. And I can find aligned partners. You need all of those things to line up. Uh, it's not common. I've had examples, though, through the in the in the past where that's occurred in be it uh, forestry in 2011 private credit in the post-GFC or sort of music royalties in the sort of 2015, 2016 space. So they would be the ones that would probably be what the characteristics I really love. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? I would say peer group benchmarking. I think that is just wrong on so many levels. Thankfully, I'm not subject to it. (laughs) But I think it, you know, destroyed the UK defined benefit pension scheme and that whole industry is just so problematical on so many levels. So that would be my biggest one, probably. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? One would have to be a gentleman called Andreas Whittam Smith, who was the person that decided that the church needed a CIO and was ultimately the person that decided that he wanted to take someone still in his 30s and give them a CIO seat off a fund. So that he, he would have to be one because I, I, you know, I hope he would think that I've done a good job and that it was worth it. But I feel at the time they may have had other safer or easier to make options, but they went for me and I'm super grateful for that. The other one would be probably a gentleman called Justin Abercrombie at Schroders who plucked me out of the fixed income team to work on the corn equity and investment strategies um, and took, you know, again, an individual that I guess took a leap of faith and chose, gave me that break because they're, they're the people that have really, if you like, given me opportunity um, that I'm incredibly grateful for. I Hopefully I've justified their trust in me, but um, that they, they would be the two I'd point to. What was the most challenging moment in your career? I mean, like I guess many people would, would, would say if they'd been working as long as I have, it probably would have been post-GFC. We weathered that pretty well, actually. And I was at Ram Merchant Bank. That institution did really well on a relative basis during that period. But I had to let team members go. And I never liked doing that. I think when I do it, when I've had to do it, I've done it in a kind and thoughtful way. But, you know, at that moment, you know, letting people go at a time when you knew that it was going to be difficult for them to get other roles, etc. I was dealing, obviously, then with clients. Clients were very worried, even though their performance was pretty good. It was just an incredibly stressful, stressful time. How'd you find your way through? You know, on the people front, just being sort of really clear and transparent and sort of thoughtful about how we did it. Being clear in communications, being sort of patient and knowing. I've seen other cycles. I've seen the sort of dot-com bubble bursting. And so, you know, I knew that eventually it would all work itself out. 
I exercised a lot, you know, a, a lot during that time. So making sure that you found time for your own self your own well-being which i think is just important at all times but particularly important during stressful times to not allow the stress to build up what teaching from your parents has most stayed with you i'd like to say two things because my parents were such opposites i mean they really epitomized that adage that opposites attract for my father i would say he really taught me not to worry too much about what other people think to follow your own path and not worry. I mean, I think through life, and, and I see it now with my own children, the sort of peer pressure is so strong. And I've never really bothered by that or succumbed to that. And that really came from my father. I think it's brilliant, actually, and helpful in an investment career, in an investment role. So that, so I really thank him for, for teaching me that. And from my mother's side, who was just the most caring human being, she taught me always, no matter what, always treat others as you wish to be treated. So those two things I've really sort of carried with me. Tom, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I think that I'd have to say patience. Don't worry. Everything will be fine. And don't rush to decisions. You know, early in your career, you're wanting to make an impact. Sometimes I wish I'd be more patient. Tom, thanks so much for sharing the story of this incredibly important influential pool of capital. Ted, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time.